textiles are like ephemeral dust motes gently sprinkled throughout history, existing for only a short time unless given great care and attention. So many just haven't survived, while many others were unpicked and reused until they simply wore away. And sadly, uh, many more were simply destroyed. And I'm thinking of Henry VIII here, who burnt church furnishings and fabrics during his church reformations. And looking at and researching surviving work produced during the Middle Ages has made me want to explore the tools medieval embroiderers used. Would they recognise any of ours? Would I recognise any of theirs? Quite a few, surprisingly. So let's explore just what they secreted away in their medieval sewing baskets. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. From the very beginning, people who made cloth and embellished it with decorative stitch made implements and tools that helped ensure their work was completed properly, that made their work easier to do or simply saved them time. Remember that saying, a tradesman's only as good as his tools? Well, it's true. Think of those spindle whorls the weights used in some forms of weaving, made from antler, bone, ivory and ceramics, purpose made by ancient artisans, some so delicately and intricately inscribed with decoration that they resonate to this day with their mark making and their imprint. It's a visual reminder of those hands used to craft them with so much care. Now, the tools used for embroidery may have started out as basic task-oriented implements, but over time, not only has their design improved, but also their decoration. And just like our ancient ancestors, we like beautiful things to work with too. Hugh of St Victor, 1096-1141, wrote this about sewing tools. Textile manufacture includes all types of weaving, sewing and spinning, which are done by hand, needle, spindle, awl, reel, comb, loom, crisper, iron or any other kind of instrument. There are a few other important ones too though, such as thimbles, scissors or shears and needle cases. The types of accessories that just made an embroiderer's life easier. Let's start with how a medieval embroiderer or designer would have transferred their design onto fabric. 
Kay Staniland, in her book Embroiderers, mentions Cennino Cennini, who wrote about the use of tailor's chalk for drawing on black or blue cloth, made neatly into little pieces, just as you do with charcoal, he says, and put them into a goose feather quill or of whatever size is required and draw lightly. Then fix with tempered white lead. Gosh, aren't we lucky we can just use a pencil or, or a pre-made chalk pencil? So how did transferring a design impact on speeding up the embroidery process, helping to keep customers happy and ensure timely delivery of work? Simply by using repetitive applique motives, stitched directly onto the ground fabric, a technique often used in the demands for both secular and ecclesiastical embroidery. And it really was all about speeding up that process of design and production. Even then, it was about dancing with deadlines. Those medieval embroiderers were definitely canny thinkers. By replicating a design element, it minimised the designer's time as well as facilitating and enabling a large team of embroiderers to work on them individually, affording faster assembly onto the garment or hanging. These repetitive motives were produced by tracing the design onto paper or parchment, pricking the design outline with small holes, then laying this on top of the ground fabric and transferring the design by pouncing with powdered chalk, pumice or charcoal, which left small amounts of powder through the holes. The design could be replicated and repeated quickly and easily, any number of times. When the paper was removed, what was revealed were lines of fine dots of powder, which could be fixed with paint or ink. Any surplus powder could simply be blown away. And this method is still used today in many of the top fashion houses as a safe way to transfer a design onto a ground fabric. Women were also known to use both natural light and candlelight to aid the transfer process, very similar to what we do today with underglass lighting or taping our designs to a window with a good light source. During the 14th century, paper production increased and by the time of Cennino Cennini, in Italy at least, it was possible to acquire very thin white paper. He suggests greasing this paper with linseed oil until it is transparent and it is good. A much older method used parchment scraped until it was transparent, then similarly treated with linseed oil. On occasion, the parchment was even used as a stabiliser, left in the work to form a foundation for the embroidery motive, helping to prevent distortion during embroidery. Conservators have found evidence of this from time to time, so nothing is really new, is it? Which is why my admiration for these medieval embroiderers just grows and grows. So simply in the work of transferring a design onto cloth, 
We have paper, which was probably more in use towards the end of the Middle Ages, parchment, an awl or something sharp to prick and make holes, a pounce filled with either chalk, pumice or charcoal, linseed oil, paint and ink. Even royal accounts provide fleeting glimpses into the payments for embroidery materials used. However, they rarely cover equipment such as needles, pins and shears, leading to the belief that embroiderers were simply expected to supply their own, although occasionally pins are mentioned in royal trousseau. Stretching the ground fabric onto wooden frames had been going on for several centuries. Tacked or pulled taut by a strong whipped thread around the frame at regular intervals provided the necessary tension required for embroidery. Large frames could be supported on trestles, enabling a number of embroiderers to work on a large commission at the same time. Now, needles were an extremely important and costly possession and were stored carefully in cases or boxes. New brides' trousseaus included them, such as that of Violanti Strozzi, who, according to Masaccio, went to her marriage in 1486 with a dowry including seven needle cases, a silver thimble and 1,000 small pins. Now that was really something for those times. Medieval European needles were probably made of a copper alloy, similar to those found in excavations in London, although the finest of those found, dating from the late 12th to early 13th century, were made from iron. Great care was taken to store these needles as they were considered such an important implement. Early needle cases were designed with a cap which could slide up strings attached to a lady's belt. These could be simply designed or were quite ornate and were always close at hand. Made from leather, bone or metal, they could store three to six needles. A later English tin needle case dating from the 15th century looks to be some sort of pilgrim souvenir, while a wooden one from Flanders from around the same time is decorated with love symbols. In her research paper, Household Artifacts, European Sewing Tools 1150-1600 in Practical Use, Alessandra de la Chapelle suggests that pins came in a variety of sizes based on their purpose of use, such as securing veils, pinning sleeves and laying pleats, as well, of course, for garment construction. Excavations of over 800 pins in London dating from 1150 to 1450 found pins with decorative heads of glass or semi-precious stones such as coral or jasper. A delightful late 15th century Italian portrait of Costanza Caetani by an unknown artist in the style of Domenico Ghirlandaio, 1480-90, shows a small collection of sewing tools including a ring thimble, a needle and a selection of pins with wire-wrapped heads, one significantly longer than the others. A little later than our medieval time period, but interesting nonetheless, is the inventory of the Mary Rose, 
Henry VIII's warship lost in 1545, listing a total of 15 pins, seven with a solid head, the rest having wound heads made from a separate piece of wire. Bobbins and pin cushions came into use after the medieval period, but it's worth noting that among the sewing tools recovered from the Mary Rose were bobbins made of ash, alder, scotch pine and willow. Reels were probably not used by embroiderers until the late Middle Ages. However, silk threads have been found wound onto sticks and sticks were often used as a measuring device as well as a form of early measuring tape. Flax was grown in England, France, Germany and the Low Countries during the Anglo-Saxon period and although it decomposes quickly, a few extant examples cannot definitively document linen as the thread used but it's quite plausible that this was the case. Linen thread of different thicknesses and colours was cited in the British Great Wardrobe accounts of the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries with an entry in the Great Wardrobe account of 1333 indicating that Queen Philippa's five Easter garments required one pound of linen thread and three ounces of silk thread, according to Crowfoot. Silk as a thread survives far better than linen and was used frequently in clothing for the aristocracy as well as the wealthy merchant families used to join seams for decorative embroidery or to make buttonholes and eyelets on silk, linen and woolen clothing. Thimbles, those humble ancient implements, can be traced back to the Bronze Age or even earlier. Alessandra de la Chapelle writes that Chinese archaeologists found needle rings as early as the 2nd century coming to Europe from China via Persia and Byzantium, with the earliest finds of thimbles in Europe dating from the 9th century. They appear to have come to England even later. Domed thimbles trace their shape back to the Islamic Empire, brought to Europe by the returning crusaders, although ring thimbles were primarily used until the mid-13th century. The city of Nuremberg began making thimbles in 1373 and quickly became a thimble-making centre. Cast in sand, which accommodated the domed beehive shape, they were then drilled or hammered with indentations. Alessandra de la Chapelle again writes that thimbles could be simply made of copper alloy, silver or gold like needles and needle cases, and were a common part of a noblewoman's dowry. In her will, Dame Philippa Brudenell bequeathed a silver thimble to the wife of her stepson in 1532. That fascinating woman of history, Elizabeth I, is known to have owned a gold thimble and a needle case of crystal, garnished with silver gilt and two, with two thimbles in it, according to Groves. Although there's no primary source documenting the use of beeswax, it seems likely that it was used as a thread conditioner and also as a means of keeping the edges of fabric from unravelling in the 1150 to 1450 era, as well as in the late 15th to early 16th centuries.
shears, those oh-so-necessary cutting tools, are seen in Europe from the 6th century and at their simplest may be described as two blades joined by a U-shaped spring. London archaeological excavations resulted in finds of shears ranging from just under 3 inches long to 12 and a half inches long. Obviously the smaller ones would have been best for a single, small cut, as in snipping threads for embroidery, while the longer, larger shears would have been better for cutting cloth. According to Alessandra de la Chapelle, the design for shears doesn't appear to change, with scissors, which uses a far more complex design, coming into general use in the late 13th to early 14th centuries, making the cutting of a straight line easier. Now, did medieval embroiderers keep their sewing tools and accoutrements altogether in some form of sewing basket? I couldn't find any documentation to support this idea until the inventory of the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's warship, which is a much later time. There are, however, illuminations of baskets being used to carry linen cloth during the late medieval period, opening the possibility, a possibility that some form of sewing basket could have been used as a secure receptacle for those valuable sewing tools and accessories, but there's just no definitive source to support this. I've posted an image of a manuscript of the Holy Family on the Stitch Safari Facebook page. Joseph is planing some wood with his tools neatly hanging on the wall behind him. Jesus is playing at Mary's feet and Mary is sitting stitching with a small sewing basket on a table within easy reach. It's a delightful setting dating from an, uh, an Italian 1460s manuscript. But as an embroiderer, it makes sense to me that some form of safe storage was used, especially in a home situation where children could easily injure themselves. Any parent would be on the lookout for those kinds of dangers. Even professional embroiderers must have composed their tools in a case or box of some sort, not only for easy storage or access, but also to care for them. They would have been expensive to buy and replace if damaged or lost. And if they were expected to provide their own tools and equipment when dealing uh, with royal customers, they must have carried them to their workplace, unless they were part of a royal workshop. So while a medieval sewing basket doesn't seem to be out of the question, and research indicates the high regard sewing and embroidery was held at this time, it would have behoved those embroiderers to have looked after their tools somehow. They were the staple of their income, after all. Reason was a great motivator for the medieval artisan, and there's reason behind each of their tools and practices. Whether they made their work easier, as in the case of beeswax and embroidery frames, or helped speed up process, as in the case of reusable pricked paper or parchment designs. Whether they were indispensable equipment, as in the case of pins and needles, or were simply practical, as in shears of various size and sizes, reason was behind everything. There's a connection between our ancient ancestors and their medieval counterparts. 
And that's their ability to problem solve. And that's really what these tools are all about. We started out with bone fractured and sharpened by hand to form a needle to create a stitch. Now we see metal implements casting for thimbles and the use of paper and parchment in transferring and stabilising work and even beeswax to aid stitching. Clever, simple, ingenious. We know they used charcoal, chalk and pumice to transfer designs and made use of the widely developed simple designs for shears. And their frames made to tension the embroidery as it was worked could be used over trestles enabling more than one embroiderer to stitch a design at the same time. And yet, while there's no evidence suggesting the use of something we would recognise as a sewing basket, I believe they must have secreted their precious collection of tools and accessories into something that was safe, easily accessible and transportable. What an amazing journey this is. And thank you for listening. I know your time is precious and I appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the Stitch Safari website, stitchsafari.com, for related resources and also for the Stitch Safari podcast Facebook page, where I post interesting articles, videos and images. So till our next episode, bye for now.